together. Mark chapter 15. We'll be in the first 15 verses of Mark chapter 15. The heading above that chapter in my Bible says Jesus' trial before Pilate. That's exactly what this section of scripture that we're studying this morning entails. Jesus is placed on trial before a very powerful man. And his fate is going to be in Pilate's hands. The title of the message is in the form of a question this morning. A question that I want to resonate in your heart. I want you to revisit in your mind all throughout the sermon this morning. And it's this. Were you there? I want want you to put that question in the center of your mind. That's the centerpiece of our sermon. That's what I want you to reflect on as we examine this text. I want you to ask yourself, were you there? Where? Where? Were you at Calvary? Were you in the courtroom? When Jesus bled, died on a cross, when he was scourged, when he was mocked, when he was ridiculed and he was stripped naked, when he was buried in the tomb, were you there? When he stood before Pilate and he's being falsely accused, were you there? The famous artist Rembrandt lived during the 1700s and was known for painting many pieces of work that depicted biblical accounts, such as the, the storm on the Sea of Galilee and Jacob blessing the sons of Joseph, one of his more famous paintings is the return of the prodigal son as he depicts kind of the emotion of that moment. Another painting that gets less attention is is the painting that is called the three crosses. The portrait depicts the crucifixion of Jesus alongside the two criminals. Rembrandt painted the portrait in such a way that the first thing you're going to notice about the picture, of course, is Jesus on the center cross. It's the most prominent Perhaps the next thing you notice is the different facial expressions of those in the crowd. Something unique to his painting. He spent a lot of time giving attention to that particular detail. Eventually, maybe not first or second or third, but eventually your eyes would move to the edge of the painting. And you notice a more obscure character that's kind of covered up by the shadows. Historians say that that character is supposed to depict Rembrandt himself. He literally painted himself into the crucifixion scene. Here's why. He knew that it was his sin that placed Jesus on the cross. By painting himself into the scene, he was admitting that in some way he was there when they crucified his Lord. So what Rembrandt did in painting himself into the crucifixion scene is what I want you to do with Mark 15 this morning. I want you to read yourself into this passage of Scripture. I want you to see yourself in the portrait that Mark paints. As I said, this covers the last stages of Jesus' trial. And it's going to contain four different characters who are all responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. There's Pilate. There's the religious leaders. There's the crowd. And there's Barabbas. As we examine each character, I want you to see if you identify with any of them. Let's start by reading the text at large, the first 15 verses. And straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, art thou the king of the Jews? 
And he answered, said unto them, Thou sayest it. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at that feast he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude crying aloud began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. But the chief priest moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said unto them, Why? What evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Four characters. I wonder if you're in this story. Let's identify each one of them and see if we relate. First is Pilate. Like Pilate, we value our reputation over Jesus. This is actually the, the second courtroom scene that we've studied. The first courtroom scene was in the last chapter where Jesus received a guilty verdict before the highest religious court in all of Israel, what was called the Sanhedrin. If you recall our message last week, we discovered that that was a sham trial, kangaroo court. The, the Sanhedrin brought all these false witnesses to the table, which meant they weren't out to meet justice. They were out to kill Jesus. That's why after their trial, they rushed to transport Jesus to Pilate. Not because they needed a second opinion on their ruling, but because they didn't have the authority to kill a criminal themselves. The religious leaders, they could convict a criminal. The Sanhedrin could arrest a criminal. They could even flog a criminal. But only Rome had the authority to kill a criminal. And that's what they wanted. Only Jesus' blood would satisfy them, which meant that his fate was in Pilate's hands. You notice when we read that when they took him to Pilate, they didn't tell Pilate that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy, which is what they accused him of in chapter 14. The reason why is because Pilate was a pagan, lost Roman official. He didn't care much about Jesus claiming to be the son of God. Wasn't a big deal to him at all. So they changed their conviction to the crime of sedition, something that Pilate would care about. They told him that Jesus was claiming not to be the son of God, but to be the king of the Jews, which would be treason in that day, because that means Jesus would be attempting to usurp the Caesar, and that crime was worthy of death. Exactly what the religious leaders wanted. Yet we read that amazingly, Jesus remained silent through it all. He didn't answer his critics, didn't ask if he could lawyer up. And Mark says that his silence amazed Pilate. It amazed Pilate because most criminals in Jesus' place or Jesus' position would be screaming at Pilate, saying anything they could to convince him they were innocent, but not Jesus. Why? He didn't have to convince Pilate he was innocent. Pilate already knew. 
In fact, he asked three times what they were expecting him to do to this apparent king of the Jews. He even asked them like, guys, what real evil do you see in him? Tell me, tell me really what he's done that's so bad. Pilate knew they were driven by envy and really didn't have much of a case. So the Sanhedrin ran around and gathered all these people together manipulated their emotions, gave them their side of the story and got the people to scream in unison, crucify him. At that moment, Pilate began to feel the, the political pressure that came with his job. Verse 15 says that he was willing to content or please the people. See, he was a political pragmatist. And it would have been political suicide for him to release Jesus because that would have started a riot during the Passover week. Caesar didn't want that. So he did the wrong thing in order to save his own reputation. Question, do you see yourself in Pilate? Do you, do you struggle with valuing your reputation over Jesus? The Bible calls this the fear of man, doesn't it? Something our, our Wednesday night congregation is very familiar with as we're studying through this, this study of the fear of man and the fear of God. We titled it, When People Are Big and God Is Small. Those messages have been real helpful. I invite you to be here at 7 o'clock for those. Fearing man means simply that we have an, an unhealthy desire for acceptance or, or approval or, or being needed by other people. I found that this fear of man, like it did with Pilate, it affects our decisions, it, it affects our emotions, it affects our behaviors, it, it affects our attitudes. Listen, Christian, when we desire the approval of man more than we desire the approval of God, hear me, disobedience is inevitable. Solomon says in, in Proverbs 29 that the fear of man always leads to sin. It says the fear of man brings a snare. It, it traps you in a sinful pattern of behavior. For instance, when the fear of man governs the way we parent our children. When we parent according to what will make us or them more popular. Or when we fear our child's disapproval of us more than we desire for them to have a pure heart, even if that means telling them no, we are destined to make some big parenting mistakes, even sinful ones. When we desire to be accepted by other uh, people in our life and that desire for acceptance somehow influences our decision making on a Friday night or a Saturday night or as a Christian at a work Christmas party we are destined to behave in ways that we'll regret and if you don't regret them you, you'll, you'll come to realize they don't bring glory to your Savior why do Christians even neglect the responsibility to share the gospel and invite others to church? Here's why. We fear man. We fear rejection. We fear being viewed a certain way by people if we talk about Jesus in front of them or to them. I have felt a sliver of this burden as a pastor. When I start fearing man more than God, I'm bound to make some very foolish decisions for our ministry. Or at least not make the right decisions. When I'm more concerned as a pastor about who may complain or who may misunderstand or who may not like a decision more than I'm concerned about the direction that God is leading this church to grow, the ministry will suffer. Every one of us are more controlled by the fear of man than we think we are. And all of us are probably a little more like Pilate than we'd like to think. 
We value our reputation over Jesus. There's a second character in the trial. That's the religious leaders. How might we identify with them? Well, like the religious leaders, we elevate our agenda over Jesus's. One of the main themes of Mark's gospel is the escalating hostility between Jesus and the religious leaders. I mean, ever since the onset of Jesus' public ministry, they've been antagonizing him. They've been picking on him. They've been seeking to embarrass him and discredit him. Think back all the way to chapter 2 of our study in Mark. They accused him of blasphemy when for the first time he claimed he could forgive sinners. In chapter 3, they, they started plotting how they could kill him because he looked them square dead in the eyeballs and said they were more concerned about keeping their silly religious rules more than they were concerned about the well-being of other people created in his image. After his miracles in chapter 3, they accused him of being possessed by the devil. In chapter 7, they accused Jesus of violating the Sabbath because one of his disciples washed his hands on the Sabbath day. God forbid. In chapter 8, the Pharisees were antagonistic as they demanded a sign of Jesus to prove his authority. In chapter 11, Jesus went and cleaned house in the temple as he, as he prohibited their, their, their wicked money-making practices. And so in response, the, the religious leaders challenged his authority and they attempted to discredit him in front of all of the people. See, the religious leaders hated Jesus. They hated him because they saw him as a threat to their religious agenda. Jesus was preaching a message that the people were drawn to because it wasn't an oppressive message. It was a message of grace. And when the Sanhedrin noticed how many people were listening to Jesus and following Jesus, they knew they were losing control. So they had to elevate their agenda in order to get Jesus killed. Did you know this? That when you're addicted to something, you'll do anything to ensure you don't lose it. The religious leaders were addicted to power. They were addicted to control. They were addicted to position. So they killed the Savior in order to keep it. Greg Gifford said this, how do we know if our desires have grown too big? We ask ourselves, am I willing to sin to get it? Am I willing to sin to keep it? Am I willing to sin if I don't get it? See, that's what these religious leaders were doing. And we have to be careful, very careful to avoid doing the same thing. We, I think, identify with them pretty close because... I think a lot of us have the tendency, the, the tendency to elevate our agenda, what we want in our life over what God wants in our life. We're, we're, we're like the religious leaders when we elevate our agenda for our career over God's agenda for our career. And we've, when we elevate our agenda for our kids' future over God's agenda for our kids' future. And when we elevate our agenda for our money over God's agenda for our money. And we, we elevate our agenda over our marriage for our marriage over God's agenda for our marriage. And we elevate our agenda for our church over God's agenda for our church. Hey, we're just like the religious leaders when we seek our kingdom first instead of seeking first the kingdom of God. Ask yourself, have my desires become an agenda in my life? How do I know? Well, what are you willing to get what you what are you willing to do to get what you want? You willing to sin to get it? You willing to sin to keep it? Are you willing to sin if you don't get it? Do you see yourself this morning 
as a religious leader? Do you, do you elevate your agenda for your life over God's agenda for your life? There's a third character and that's the crowd. Like the crowd, we reject Jesus in favor of other things. See, Mark informs us in verse six that every Passover, Pilate had this custom where he granted amnesty to, to one criminal. His choice was usually based on what would favor him politically. That's why he asked the people who they would like him to release. They got to pick Barabbas. This would have been a lot like what you see our United States presidents do at some point in their turn when they pardon convicted criminals and release them from our prison system. It was a, it was a tradition. It was a, it was a custom. Well, this is where Barabbas comes in. He, he was the one criminal that Pilate was considering releasing on this day. Why was he a criminal? Well, because he started a riot. And in that riot, he apparently murdered somebody. This man should have been in jail. He should have been executed. According to their traditions. On the other hand, you have Jesus Christ. Question, what was he guilty of? He healed people of their diseases. He set people free from demonic oppression. He raised people from the dead. He gave people hope of eternal life. He put families back together. Yet here's the crowd, and they're screaming at the top of their lungs, crucify the Savior. And they're screaming, release the murderer. They're saying, crucify the one that gives people life. Release the one who takes people's life. It doesn't make good sense. They were willing to give up Jesus for lesser things. And before we're too hard on the crowd, we, can, we should consider if we identify with them today. Because we'd be tempted to think that we would never treat Jesus that way. We would never stoop to the depravity of this crowd. We would never vote to crucify a savior and release a murderer. But based on how we treat Jesus sometimes today, I think we might have done exactly what the crowd did. They simply rejected Jesus for something or someone lesser. Do we not do the same thing? Do we not give Jesus up at times in our life for lesser things? Or lesser people? Or less pleasure than what he can give us? Do we not replace our loving Savior with less than lovely things? I, for one, have to say guilty. Back when search engines were first being utilized on the internet, there was a company called America Online. How many remember them? <laughs> We've come so far. America Online released the internet search history of 650,000 of their users to the public. The company was trying to demonstrate its vast reach among consumers. But in order to protect each user's privacy, AOL didn't use their names. They assigned each searcher a number. Sadly, though, the New York Times, leave it to them, demonstrated how easy it was to match a number with a person if you did the right amount of investigation. And that's what they did. Their investigation revealed who was searching and what they were searching for. And it was quite embarrassing to see the silly things people were searching. 
And it will probably make you blush to see the downright sinful things people were searching. New York Times later wrote an article revealing what they learned in that investigation. And in, a, in that article, they said this, I quote, each user's data trail drew an unflinching picture of that person. You could say we are all defined by our searches. Let me ask you today, what would your search say about you? I'm not asking about what you search on Google. I'm asking about what you're searching for and chasing after in your life right now. What would the data trail of your life say about you? What would the money trail of your life say about you? What would the relational trail of your life say about you? What would the recreational trail of your life say about you? What would the career trail of your life say about you? Because what you search for and chase after the most may reveal what you are attempting to replace Jesus with in your life right now. See, like the crowd, we're all little idolaters that reject Jesus in favor of other things, lesser things. Church, what I'm trying to do in this sermon today is to help us not distance ourselves too far from the characters in the story. Because were it not for the good grace of God in our lives, we would be right in the middle of the crowd saying, crucify him. So I want to ask you today, were you there when they crucified your Lord? See, I know in one regard you could say no because you weren't physically there. But in another sense, we would all have to answer yes. Because just like Pilate, just like the religious leaders, just like the crowd, our sin put Jesus on the cross, not theirs. Isaiah in his prophecy confirms this to be the case. He says, I want you to pay close attention to the pronouns. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's no way around it, church. Our sin necessitated the death of Jesus. We are as guilty as Pilate who valued his reputation over Jesus. We are as guilty as the religious leaders who elevated their agenda above Jesus's. And we are as guilty as the crowd who rejected Jesus for lesser things. Martin Luther had it right when he said this. We all carry about in our pockets his very nails. John Stott in his book, The Case of Christ, which you should read. Writes this, if we were in their place, we would have done what they did. Indeed, we have done it. For whenever we turn away from Christ, we are crucifying the Son of God all over again. Subjecting Him to public disgrace. We too sacrifice Jesus to our greed like Judas. To our envy like the priest. To our ambition like Pilate. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The old spiritual song asked. And we must answer, yes, we were there. Not as spectators only, but as participants. 
Guilty participants plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, and handing him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt will be as futile as his, for there is blood on our hands. My burden today is simply this. Before we can see the cross as something done for us, we must see the cross as something done by us. I want to talk about the beauty of the cross. Even though it's brutal, there is beauty to be found in the cross. We'll talk about it next week. But before you can worship Christ for what he did for you, you must first repent of what you did to him. Before you can claim your share in the grace of the cross, you must first own your share in the guilt of the cross. Like Pilate, we value our reputation over Jesus. Like the religious leaders, we elevate our agenda above Jesus. Like the crowd, we reject Jesus in favor of other things. There's one more character. We all resemble him. It's Barabbas. Like Barabbas, Jesus was condemned in our place. The scene is an ironic reversal. The criminal goes free while the Savior is slain. See, I believe the substitution of Jesus for Barabbas is the Holy Spirit's way of reminding us of the ultimate purpose of the cross. Jesus isn't merely a victim of injustice. His death isn't a senseless tragedy. Hear me, church. He is a willing sacrifice. He volunteered to die for sinners like you and me. He willingly allowed himself, the righteous one, to be handed over so that the unrighteous can go free. To quote John Stott again, he said this, The concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Watch here. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. You and I, please hear me, we're the criminals today. We're the sinners. But praise the Lord that Paul writes that God commendeth, he demonstrated, he showed his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hear this, you're Barabbas. I'm Barabbas. We're all guilty. We deserve to be sentenced to death and hell. But praise God for Romans 5 and verse 10 that says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We must look at our sin long enough and serious enough to feel the weight of it. And we've done that today. We've seen ourselves in all these characters. But listen very closely. We don't have to stay there. We should listen to the counsel of Robert Murray McShane when he said, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. When you see your sin, look at Christ's forgiveness. You can't appreciate Christ's forgiveness unless you first look at your sin. But after you look at your sin, take 10 looks at Christ's forgiveness. When you see that like Pilate, you valued your reputation more than you valued Jesus, remind yourself that he valued you more than he valued his own life. 
When you see that like the religious leaders, you've elevated your agenda above God's agenda. Remind yourself that Jesus laid aside his agenda to fulfill his father's agenda, even though that included a bloody cross. When you see that like the crowd, you've rejected Jesus for lesser things, and we all have. Remind yourself that Jesus was rejected so that you could be accepted by God. When you see yourself like Barabbas as the guilty one who should be slain, remind yourself that Jesus became your substitute so that you could go free. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at the good, gracious, generous, sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. The old spiritual song goes like this. Were you there? When they crucified my Lord, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, to tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to that tree? Were you there when they nailed him to that tree? Sometimes it makes me want to tremble, tremble. Were you there when they nailed him to that tree? And we must all say, yes, we were there. I want to praise the Lord that even though we put him on the cross, he stayed there. And he finished his course. And he died a full death so that we could go free. There are three appropriate responses to the message today. Very simple. The first is for the lost. When I say the lost, I don't mean that, that you should be an outcast today or unloved today or any of that. I don't mean that you're any less loved than Jesus. I just mean this. There hasn't come a time in your life when by faith, by faith, you look to the cross and you trusted that what Jesus did on the cross as your substitute is enough to take you to heaven and you have trusted that to forgive you of your sins. You have repented of anything else in your life that you are trying to, 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 to do or accomplish so as to bring you in favor with God. And you are saying, I want to be in a relationship with Jesus. So if that's you today, here's your response. Repentance. Repentance. You turn from your sin and you turn to your Savior. You turn from baptism and you turn to your Savior. You turn from just trying to be a good person and you turn to the Savior who is the most, the, the most righteous person. You turn from trying to turn over a new leaf during Christmas season. And you turn to the Savior to forgive you of all your sin. That's how you should respond if you're lost today. If you're saved, there are two ways you should respond. If you know this is true and you've trusted it and, 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 and you are claiming the gospel, 
That's true in your life. By faith, you believed it and accepted it. Then here's how you need to respond. Not just repentance for the lost, but humility for the arrogant. See, as Christians, here's what we're prone to do. We're prone to look at everybody else's sin. We're we're prone to criticize and complain and say, oh, they're a lot worse than I am. That's what we're prone to do as believers. You know what this does? It, It puts us all on evil ground, even ground. Someone has said that all the ground's level at the foot of the cross because it is. You are as much a sinner as Barabbas was. Or Pilate, the Roman soldiers, the crowd, the religious leaders. We Christians, we have no right to look down our pointed nose at other believers and say, I'm a lot better than they are. How dare you do that? Your sin put Jesus on the cross as much as theirs did. And for that, there should be humility. Number three, worship from the saved. Repentance from the lost, humility from the arrogant, and worship from the saved. Recognize today that you were Barabbas. And Jesus said, go free. And he took your punishment. And and how should you respond with that? Just intellectually recognizing it? No, something in your heart ought to be stirring right now. And you should be thinking in your heart, can you stop talking so I can pray and tell God thank you? If you're a Christian and you've been introduced to Christ's sacrifice, afresh and anew, then ought to lead you to an altar or at least an attitude of worship today. Where you say, I am an unworthy sinner. Thank you for being the Lamb of God that was crucified for me. Would you stand every head bowed and every